0: Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Dr. Javeria Zahir. She's a clinician scientist with the Institute for Mental Health Policy Research Education Administrator in the Emergency Department at CamH. Her research focuses on suicide, gender, and culture, and she is the lead author of the Canadian Armed Forces Clinician Handbook on Suicide Prevention. Dr. Javeria Zahir has done extensive research and investigation on suicide notes and believes that by investigating them, we have an opportunity to improve our understanding of the mindset of people in the moments prior to their suicide deaths. The hope is that we can use this information to understand patterns of thinking that contribute to suicide. These patterns can be targets of treatment in those at risk. Dr. Zahir has been instrumental in implementing programs that affect the performance of an organization. Nationally, she led the development of the Canadian Armed Forces Clinician's Handbook for Suicide Prevention, a 72-page manual distributed to every CAF health care provider to guide a standardized approach to care for service members at risk for suicide. Today's episode is part of a six-part series by CAMH. CAMH stands for Center for Addiction and Mental Health, which is Canada's largest mental health teaching hospital. On September 10th, World Suicide Prevention Day, they are launching a national campaign called Not Suicide, Not Today. To Raise Awareness for Suicide Prevention. And I was lucky enough that they reached out to me um, into the podcast to help spread the awareness of their mission of Not Suicide, Not Today. I've put a link to the organization in the show notes. And as usual, you can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Remember, I started this podcast because when I was nine, told my mom when I turned 40, I was going to end my life. And I'm 44 now and still plugging away. The, the, the struggle, the battle, uh, it, it's daily. It's from moment to moment. It doesn't end, but I'm still here and thriving and moving forward. And that's why I always end every po- ep- episode with let's get to tomorrow together because I realize we can't do anything alone. We can't thrive. We can't, we can't be successful. We can't feel connected by ourselves in isolation. We must take the risk of being vulnerable, of letting ourselves be hurt again. I know you've been hurt before, and I know you don't want to be hurt again. And I have to tell you, that is how we grow. That's how we evolve. And there's no reason for you to do that by yourself. You can go to thrivewithleo.com so that you can get coaching from yours truly or call the 1-800-SUICIDE number or all the other numbers that I'll always list in my show notes. All of my guests also leave their contact information. There's someone who wants to hear from you. Your story deserves to be heard, and you deserve help. One last thing. Uh, There is a fan. It's hot right now. When I'm recording this, there's a heat wave Throughout the world, it's 110 degrees, so a lot of my guests have their fan and AC on. So for the first 20 minutes of this podcast, you're going to hear the fan in the mic. It's going to sound like she's breathing into it. It's just the fan in the mic. Uh, I'd, I'd be um, evil to ask someone in 110 degree heat to cut their fan off for a one-hour podcast. So please bear with the uh, the audio. Uh, sounds. And with that said, let's jump into the episode. Javaria, I'm excited to have you on today. Uh, being a specialist in with suicide notes, uh, can you talk to us about what suicide notes tell us about how we can prevent suicide?
1: That's a a great question. And thank you so much, Leo, for having me on today. Uh, When I'm not doing research in suicide prevention, I work as a psychiatrist in an emergency department. And when you're in an emergency department, you often see people on the worst days of their lives. And it's such a gift to be able to instill hope and connect with people. And I think our work with suicide notes showed us that while the vast majority of people struggling with suicidal thinking, don't die by suicide, uh, it's a way for us to understand what the people um, who we have lost were experiencing in the days and minutes before their death. And the idea is that we can harness their incredible expertise and the tragedy of suicide to help understand how we can help and intervene earlier. Um, and it's interesting because in general, we try to avoid reporting on the content of suicide notes in order not to glamorize our romanticize suicide But I think in our study and other work, like the work that we've done, can show us how we can use people's experiences um, to find a better way forward. Um, And I think one thing I remember is one of my uh, amazing research students uh, described suicidal thinking as not a risk to be managed, but a pain to be understood. And so if we can understand the pain people are experiencing, we can use that to create interventions that work.
0: Is that the common theme that you find in Suicide Notes, that people are sharing that they're just uh, going through so much pain? Uh, that they, they they wanted to end or are there other things that are more uh, uh, prevalent?
1: And I think each person is different. And I think what we noted was that there's a few things that came out. One is that people talked about feeling like that they didn't have any control or powerless, uh, were powerless in their lives. And I think they saw mental illness as a battle between their real self, who they are, um, and their mental health. But, you know, when we think about cancer, we think about something to cut out or something to get rid of, but how do you get rid of who you are and how do you keep fighting when you feel so tired? And they talk a little bit about how when you have mental health treatment, um, sometimes it can work and sometimes it can be something to be hopeful about, but sometimes depression can make us feel hopeless and we can feel like we blame ourselves, like there's something intrinsically wrong with me um, that I can't get better. And I think... You know, for all of these reasons, um, we we realize how much work we need to do as a society um, to address stigma and self-doubt and shame and to, you know, build hope for people. And I think that's one of the reasons why working at CAMH, where I work, the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, we're so excited about our pledge, our promise, our campaign called Not Suicide, Not Today, So in those moments when people are writing their notes, they feel so hopeless and powerless, but we really want to be able to provide some hope to people that if you can keep yourself safe today, we're there for you. The community is there. This country is there for you um, to help change and save your life.
0: I love that. You know, that idea of uh, feeling powerless uh, in terms of like uh, things just don't seem to be getting better. They won't get better. How do we help people reframe that? And it, it, because we do have this idea that things can always get better. Um, and is that the way to frame what we're going through? Or is there another reframe for that?
1: Yeah. When I Sometimes when I, I meet people in the emergency department, they often apologize. Um, they apologize, you know, maybe I'm not sick enough to come in or I'm sorry to be wasting your time. And I think that kind of gets at that piece you're talking about with depression and other forms of mental illness. We can feel like... We are powerless. Like we're failing, even failing to be hopeful or failing to be happy um, or failing to get better. Um, And so I think, you know, people want to get better and they want to feel better and when it doesn't happen right away um, it can be really really hard Um, and the illness you know robs us of our ability to see ourselves as amazing confident happy people or to see ourselves the way that the people we love see us so I think one way that we can think about engaging our power or um, helping people feel uh, more secure in that moment is to maybe reframe it as you know we're here for you and we just want you to be safe and let us hold on to some of the pain that you're experiencing. Let us tell you that we love you. See yourself as how we see you and let's get you engaged in mental health treatment that works and let's explore how you're feeling so we can understand it better. We can understand your pain rather than telling you, you know, you need to change or you need to empower yourself or you just need to look on the bright side.
0: I love that because there seems to be a, a theme of like just accepting and understanding. And, and I think that and I know for me, um, I, I would like when I'm, you know, I call them um, sandstorms. I, you mm-hmm. know, I close off. I don't ask questions, uh, I isolate. And I find that when I do ask people, you know, what they think about me and how they feel and, and how they view a the situation, uh, it expands my awareness and then I feel like um, I'm less of a burden we I, I know my brain you know tend, can tend to catastrophize a thing uh, mm-hmm. and and swing into like an all or nothing and I I can and the thing that pulls me out of it is like you said is is uh, you know talking to people and, and trying to see yourself through how other people see you I think that for me like the that's been the importance of keeping a journal because I, I just mm-hmm. don't keep a journal of the pain but also of the promise and the um, the the compliments, you know, when people compliment you and say things about you, to for to accept that and uh, and make note of it, so that you have something to uh, hold on to when you feel like uh, the world's caving in.
1: I think that's such a beautiful statement, and it touches on a couple of things. And the first thing I thought of when you were speaking is. You know, when we do, we do some research with family members who have lost someone that they love to suicide. And what they all say is, I just wish that he or she could have known how much we loved her and how amazing they thought they were. And we talk to, in some of our research studies, we talk to physicians who have lost a patient to suicide and they say something similar. Like we just, how could we have instilled more hope in that moment and I think sometimes you know as you said we want to shut down when things get really hard and we're in so much pain and to be able to reach out and remind ourselves how how well loved we are and how things can be otherwise um is so beautiful and the other metaphor that I thought of people have different metaphors for depression some people talk about like the black dog or the pit um One of the things that I think about is, and as a darker skinned person myself, like it's it's a metaphor that I don't 100% understand, but the sunburn metaphor. And when you have a sunburn, things that seemed like kind of normal day-to-day stuff before, like, you know, having someone grab your arm or taking a shower or changing your clothes can feel like exquisitely or tremendously painful. Or if you have an injury, you know, things that you used to do like going for a run feel like incredibly painful. And I think of mental illness and suicidal thinking like that. Like you may wake up in the morning and you can have the thoughts under control, but something could happen or you might not be able to get to sleep and the thoughts kind of ramp up. And so sometimes something that we think about is safety planning. And so what are Ways of reminding ourselves when things are really dark. What are my reasons for living? Who can I reach out to? What are the things that makes me me? What does a life with meaning look like for me? And if we can have those those sort of strategies and techniques available in that moment, it can help get us over that painful um, place that we can find ourselves in.
0: I love that you brought up uh, what does a life of meaning look like for me. I, so many people, I, you know, people who um, have you know tons of resources, educated. Uh, even they, you know, I find struggle with, uh, finding meaning. So you, you, you know, you're aware that it has nothing to do with your socioeconomic status or, or color or, uh, you know, any of the, whatever your, uh, your demographic is, uh, we all on some level at some time are struggling with meaning. What, when people say they're struggling with meaning, what does that mean? I I mean, not to, you know, be ironic, but what what is it (laughs) that they're really searching for when they say, you know, what's my purpose? Why am I here? What is that yeah. thing?
1: And yeah. who am I? And how do I fit in to this world? Um, what is the role I play? And I think that um, having discussions around what is meaningful for us comes from a place of privilege, of feeling secure and safe and not having, you know, a really intense depression or anxiety. And I think sometimes it can be really hard when people are struggling to have those big thoughts about meaning, because the question is, is how do I just... safe today how do i say you know not suicide not today i'm going to keep myself safe and i think it's you know for mental health care providers and and families and people struggling it's our responsibility to let people feel safe enough so free from trauma and oppression free from financial insecurity feel fear free from really active symptoms of mental illness so that we can take a step back and we can say what are those meaning what is the the meaning for me well how do i move forward one of the things um, sometimes I think about um, when I was a, a psychiatry resident, we read about one psychoanalyst described these transitional moments, these these transitional spaces, like, you know, that feeling where you're maybe at a concert or you're playing with children or you're outside on a beautiful day and you kind of like lose yourself in that moment. Like you don't, you know, think about bad stuff or you don't kind of see yourself struggling. And I think if we can connect to those moments, those small, tiny moments of meaning then we can build on them to know what are the things that make us happy. What are the things that make us feel ourselves? So some people might have that moments of meaning when they're writing, or when they're you know with a loved one, or um, when they're on a hike. You know these pieces of little moments, and we can build on them to build a bigger picture to understand who we are and and how um, we're going to get through this.
0: You know I, I love that you you mentioned that because that that makes complete sense. Last night when I was journaling. Um, there was a moment when I was journaling when I said I really love my I wrote I really I really love myself when I'm journaling and oh. it had more to do with um I, I, well I, you know I, I couldn't tell you all the things that it tied into but I think part of it was I was in a state of flow um, mm-hmm. and I was present I wasn't thinking about the past or the future um, and I was recalling you know, uh, pleasurable moments uh, throughout the day or from the week and thoughts and ideas and and, and connecting things. And I think that um, the meaning, as you said, is uh, about finding those pockets where you you feel present and and figuring out what is it about that moment that 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 brought that. And then how do you scale that or multiply it? Or what does it say about what you value? Is, Is that what you're alluding to?
1: That's exactly right and I couldn't have put it better. It's those small moments of meaning help connect us to how we see ourselves and what we want for the future. And you know, when we do a safety plan with someone who's struggling with suicidal thinking, you know, that's a big component of it for me. It's like what are what are what are times where you recognize yourself like I'm in that flow, I feel good. What are the things that give you you know, peace. And I think you can think about suicidal thinking as just being, feeling not at peace, feeling distressed, feeling anxious, feeling out of your body, feeling like you're in heavy sand and, and trudging through so remembering that lightness and that connection is so important and I think when as we treat mental health symptoms like you know when you're depressed you can have trouble sleeping and your energy is low your concentration is low anxieties and worries get stuck in your head it can take us away from that kind of flow state and those magical connection moments and so holding on to them when they're happening and then if they stop happening to say something's not right here and maybe um, I need to get to get treatment or I deserve to get help.
0: I want to put a pin in the uh, suicide safety plan. Uh, mm. but before that, um, are there gender differences or because I know you're in Canada, correct? I am. yeah. and 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 Muslim, I know you've done some research on uh, youth Muslims and their suicide notes. So are there differences between demographics between countries? Uh, what what have you pulled up on that?
1: I think this is a really important question and one that I'm really passionate about. Um, I think that, Psych- suicide is such a rare outcome that we often look at it in on a population wide level. So which age groups are at risk or which, you know, are men at higher risk than women or what have you. But I think that suicide has such a cultural component, such a gender overlay, you know, it's small things like growing up in a Muslim community. I remember, you know, my family saying, oh, you can you know be a doctor for sure, but don't be a psychiatrist. That's just for crazy people. That's just for people not like us. And so the idea is when we have communities where we don't talk about mental health or mental illness, um, it can reflect in the way that we seek care or how we see ourselves. Or um, one of my colleagues who is Catholic talked about how suicide isn't just a sin, it's a mortal sin. And so if you're having these thoughts, how do you kind of push through it and how do you talk about it with people who care about you? Um, you know, age is another uh, piece that's really interesting. We're doing a study right now where we're looking at the suicide notes from older folks to see how they may be different from younger folks. And so that can help. You know, people like family physicians, um, primary care providers, identify older folks who are maybe struggling um, and who may be at risk. Um, So I think when we think about suicide, it's always important to think about the whole person, how their culture, how their age um, can manifest. Another thing someone once said that really stuck with me is we often think about risk as living in someone. So, for example, you know, with the COVID-19 pandemic, well, you know, uh, black people are at higher risk. It's not because the risk lives in a black person. It's because there are differences in how we can access care differences in, um, you know, systematic, systemic racism and and health treatment. It's the same in mental health. You know, someone who is um, indigenous or trans might be at higher risk for suicide, but that risk doesn't live within them. And it's our job as a society to create a world where every life is worth living. Um, And so I think for me, that's where, you know, gender culture, age really comes into play.
0: I I love that. And then along Along with that, uh, I read that um, pronoun, the pronoun I is often used in people who uh, attempt to end their life. Have you found any research to, to back that up? Like it-
1: Yeah, I've not seen that myself, but it makes um, some intuitive sense, I think. Um, I think as humans, we want to tell our story. Um, and, and sometimes when we use the word I, it's kind of like, here's what I have been through. Here's what I've been going through. Here's where I am in relation to other people. You know, what I would hope is that, and I think as we build, you know, a society where there's less stigma and people can reach out and we can, you know, work together to help, to give help and get help. We can say like, it's, it's more of a we. We. And we can give people the freedom earlier to tell us how they're feeling and to use that I in smaller ways rather than feeling like they're all alone and isolated. And then, you know, you have to kind of be in a position where you're telling your story in a way that is all about distress and pain. Um, and so I think thinking about eyes and we's earlier is uh, is really interesting.
0: Yeah. I I also, you know, looking at the fact that you are a psychiatrist and I've I've read about like lithium being helpful in in the treatment and now they have this new nasal spray that they've released. Uh, What are your thoughts in terms of the medications and and, and what's Mm -hmm. useful and and what uh, is being used, but maybe shouldn't be?
1: Yeah. So I, one of the reasons I I'm very lucky to work at CAMH is that you have people from across the spectrum doing different work in suicide prevention, as well as the lived experiences of families and patients who can tell you like, this works, this doesn't work. I think one thing that is really important is an individual's experience of suicidal thinking is always going to be different. And I think the first step is understanding that pain, understanding their risk and understanding how we can help together. And that could mean targeting all of the different causes of suicide, uh, suicidal thinking. So one is the biological piece. So you mentioned the medication lithium. So for people with um, a mood disorder, so bipolar disorder or depression, the use of lithium is associated with a reduction in both death by suicide and suicidal thinking. That's not to say that everybody who's struggling with suicidal thinking should be on lithium, but we do know that this is kind of one piece of our treatment arsenal, one thing that can work really well on depressive symptoms, and that can help reduce suicidal thinking or reduce that kind of impulsivity or distress in the moment. Um, And then I think you mentioned mentioned intranasal, so ketamine is another area of study where intranasal ketamine has been shown to reduce suicide risks, and I think this can be one piece of the puzzle. Just as you're when you're running a marathon, you can't run a marathon without shoes on and you can't run a marathon without a water bottle and you can't run a marathon without a trainer and lots of support. Um, You can't run a marathon on a day that is 110 degrees outside. So I think of, of kind of recovery in that same way. It's like, how do we work together to trust you know, a, a medical provider that we're going to find medications that can target our symptoms? How are we going to find the right kind of therapy that works, that make us makes us feel the most like ourselves? Um, how are we going to make sure that people have, you know, safe housing and food to eat and um, are free from um, discrimination and, and distress? Um, how do we make sure that people know that they can talk to us? And if they have a, a romantic breakup or they lose their job, that they know that they still matter and they still have worth? And then how do we make sure that in that moment where things Get really hard. We have a plan in place to keep people safe. Um, So I think um, not everything works for everyone, but if we can understand people really well and know that we have time to listen and figure it out, um, and you think about someone's team. You know, it's that we again, it's, it's, there's a patient, there's their family, there's their doctors, there's everybody who's all around them cheering for them. And not everyone is going to be the person you talk to when things are hard. Someone might be someone that, you know, you play basketball with, or, um, you know, you go to a concert with, well, not right now, but you know what I mean? Not everyone has to save this, save, play the same role, but, um, we are all in it together and we need to listen to the people who are suffering to make sure that we're on the right track.
0: I love that. Thank you for sharing that. And you brought up plans. So perfect segue into what does a suicide safety plan look like? And uh, is that always the, the best for everyone who is maybe leaving some type of treatment or are there certain instances or certain people who respond better to a plan than others?
1: Uh, I think that's a great question. And there's some really um, great emerging evidence about safety plans, um, reducing people's experiences of uh, suicidal behavior and potentially increasing help seeking as well. I think a safety plan is one part of your toolbox. And I think it works the best in situations where people um, can identify reasons for living and in some moments have some hope and sort of want to be able to overcome those moments where the stress gets to be too much or the you know the the suicidal thinking can kind of peak and it can help keep you safe in those times when the risk is a little bit higher than it might be at another time. And I think that's a really good function of a safety plan. But at the same time we need to address Um, the components which put someone's someone in that kind of distressed place in the first place so it's not enough just to do a safety plan the safety plan buys us time to say okay not today we'll keep ourselves safe but how do we fix the underlying problem i think um, safety plans work really well when the patient or the person filling them out you know believes in the process and um can feel like it will be helpful for them. If someone says a safety plan isn't helpful for me, then I think it's our, our role as clinicians to kind of talk them through it and figure it out. Um, as a, an emergency department psychiatrist, um, there are some cases where I, I feel very concerned about someone um, and I'll suggest hospitalization as part of their treatment plan. Um, And I think for everybody, sometimes coming into hospital helps, sometimes it may not. We need to create a place where people feel kind of confident and um, like they can trust us and we can figure out um, how we can help someone feel better. Things that make me um, nervous in terms of where you need to go beyond a safety plan is if someone is having very severe symptoms of depression or having psychosis, um, or having mania or really intense anxiety or someone is using quite a lot of substances so alcohol or opioids that can really get in the way of keeping yourself safe in the moment and as a reflection of how much in, of how much distress you're in. Um, and then in those cases safety plans are can be useful, but there are other things that we need to do in conjunction with the safety planning
0: Thank you. Uh, well, is there a difference between people who leave a note versus people who don't leave a note?
1: Uh, I think this is a a, a good question and it's one that I asked myself when we were doing the study. So we went to the coroner um, and I would go through all of the files to see where the notes were and then transcribe the notes to analyze them. I think in general, you know, with suicide notes is that suicide seems like such an unfathomable and unsolvable, um, awful event. And sometimes we want to find kind of a a rationale or an understanding of it and so I think then those are the reasons why we ask ourselves like did they leave did someone leave a note did they not are they different are they not um and I think really you know most suicides are related to having underlying mental health issues as well as lots of psychosocial stressors. I think sometimes the underlying mental health symptoms of things like depression, psychosis, mania, substance use are so cruel and it can make you feel like there's no hope or you're in a safe, you're in a scary place. And then the suicidal behavior becomes a way to feel less trapped. Um, And so in that case, you might not, you know, write the note or do those things beforehand. And I think, you know, ultimately people who, die by suicide can feel very alone, even though we know that um, they're not alone and that they're people who love them. Um, But in that moment, you feel like you're a burden and you're alienated and it's tough to kind of connect. I'm reminded of a young man that I saw in the emergency department um, within the last year who said to me, I was going to do it. I wrote my notes. I was ready to end my life. But I saw a stat somewhere that said for every death by suicide, 10 people are extraordinarily affected. And I thought I can't do this to my family. And that was enough in that moment to keep him safe and have him ask for help. So you just hope that uh, people can feel connected um, and uh, that there are people that they want, you know, to to be close to even in that time of distress.
0: You you know, that's an interesting stat, because in some of the books I've read on suicide, uh, it's when we talk about hopelessness, they specified um, feeling affective like what they're doing is effective or their presence here is effective in some way, um, or, you know, that they are contributory. And so that idea that, um, you know, when the myth of suicide being selfish is, is so far because uh, mm-hmm. what we, like you said, what you find is a lot of people are trying to alleviate the, the, the perceived burden that they're putting on mm-hmm. other people. So it's, a, it, I mean, in some ways, it could be an over-identified with the group or mm-hmm. uh, with others, um, when going back, when you talk, when we're talking about cultural differences, um, is there? A, do we see like a spike or a decrease in places where there's uh, inequality or uh, inequity? Because you know, there, there's so many cultures where people are poor and impoverished, and they're not ending their lives. And mm-hmm. it seems to be spikes in places where uh, people are impoverished, but they're right on the border of people who are doing very well. Is there is there research uh, mm-hmm. li- leading to that?
1: So one of the things, and it's something that I've, I think I and other researchers have been thinking a lot about during the pandemic as well. You know, what happens when people are really struggling with unemployment, for example, or um, feelings of marginalization, um, as you mentioned, and one of the, there's two things that I think of in this case. So one in, in times where there is a sense of collective purpose. So for example, the two world wars, um, suicide rates actually come down. and it's, it could be for the reason that you mentioned, although I am in a very difficult position, we are in this together. And then there's some other evidence that suggests that during the times of economic recession, although this evidence is a little bit mixed, suicide rates can go up. And the idea is that, you know, I might feel like I am doing poorly compared to somebody else. And I think like the complicating piece here is, as you mentioned, when you have mental illness, when you feel depressed two things happen. One is that you feel like you're a burden. And I like how you use the word perceived. You perceive yourself to be a burden, even though other people might not experience it that way. Um, And then the second thing that happens in addition um, to feeling like a burden is that you can feel like you're stuck, like your thinking becomes kind of more rigid, a problem that maybe you could have solved before feels unsolvable and you can feel trapped. Um, And so I think that's, that's kind of a piece of it too. It's that there's that kind of interplay between stress, um, financial stress or um, distress and uh, mental illness. And I think the other thing that I think about a lot when I see people at work in the emergency department is feelings of um, shame tend to be quite distressing for people. so if you if you know if a young person is caught cheating on a test or plagiarizing or someone um, is charged with something at work related to finances or um, someone loses their job, those moments th- these things happen to all of us these awful things can happen and all we can do is kind of move forward and, and connect with the people we care about. but for some people an event like this can tri- can trigger an immense amount of shame. Um, and that like embarrassment and just feeling like you're completely worthless. And this can often, uh, you know, su- having suicidal thoughts is a trauma, but for people who have histories of trauma in their lives where they've been invalidated or people have told them that they are worthless or they haven't felt safe, these kinds of events that trigger those same traumatic feelings can be very challenging to get through.
0: Yeah. You know, it's one of the reasons why I love to read novels and biographies, uh, especially biographies, because you're you're reading real stories of people who were who were flawed and did some shameful things, but were able to recover. You know, you mentioned uh, how some people refer to their depression as the black dog, like Winston Churchill, mm-hmm. and you know he was by no means uh, perfect. And so w- when I read about other people who have stumbled, failed, divorced, lost, um, and have bounced back, it it that's what I, I attach myself to to give hope because otherwise social media uh, and the news just shows uh, failure and destruction mm-hmm. and it could, it could feed uh, a downward spiral.
1: I, I love that. And I think to, you know, suicidal thinking and mental illness has always been a source of shame in the past. And I think one thing to think about with shame is the only way to get rid of it or darkness is to shine a light on it. And when, we start talking about suicidal thinking, if instead of only talking about people that we've lost and how mysterious and tragic it was, if we can shift the conversation to people being more open about their stories of hope and recovery, these can be real touchstones to people who are struggling. And I think that if we can think about treating mental illness, getting the help you need, managing trauma, getting through those really, really dark moments, then um, I think that has an impact not just on the individual, but in their friends and family, but on all of us.
0: Yeah, you know, I just had um, neuroscientist, um, God, I can't, Andrew Huberman on, and he was talking about how uh, suicidality is a, uh, in part, his theory is a, a function of uh, time distortion. Uh,
1: mm-hmm. As
0: you mentioned earlier, the idea that, um, you know, in that moment. You know, uh, the, the I forgot who you mentioned, but they just felt like they were a burden to others and, and nobody cared for them. Mm-hmm. And then they remembered that, you know, for every suicide, it affects 10 people. And it, you we whittle it down to the moment in time that of what we're experiencing. And we think that that time is representative of our entire life uh, mm-hmm. versus recognizing it as a moment in time. Mm -hmm. Um, like I've had this moment before, but I've had other moments where I felt really connected and loved and, uh, Mm -hmm. and, and seen and heard, but you, we forget that. How do we, um, how do we help people zoom out from that time? You gave one example. Are there other examples for people who are listening in to help them zoom out of that time distortion? Or do you even agree with that analogy?
1: Yeah, I, I, it kind of comes back to, I think it dovetails really nicely with what we were talking about, about not today and safety planning and how do we make it through that really, really dark moment and kind of take the longer, take a longer view of things, you know, these moments of meaning that can go either way. Um, And I like the analogy of being able to zoom out because when the pain and the blackness is so intense, we zoom in and we can't see the people we love us. We can't see that we've been through this before and things got better. We can't see the stories of other people who've been through what we're going through. Um, It just gets so tight. And there are small things people can do in that moment. You know, one thing is that you can, you know, take yourself away from stuff that is potentially dangerous. So, you know, some people talk about like, it's not, it's not my job as a psychiatrist to talk you out of having suicidal thoughts. It's my, it's my job to kind of understand what you're going through and to provide support and empathy and so in that moment, it's not about taking suicide away from someone, taking those that, that plan or that kind of feeling of escape away from someone. It's like, okay, well, in this moment, I feel awful. I feel at risk. How do I get myself just a little bit safer. So can I leave the room? Can I call someone? Can I distract myself? And I think if we can think about like zooming out in like a micro way, like zooming out just a little bit more, can I look at a picture of someone that I love or care about? Um, And then you can continue to zoom out further as you kind of break that kind of moment. Um, I think the other thing to think about sometimes too, in terms of time distortion is that things like when we're feeling really distressed, things like alcohol um, or other substances can play a little bit of havoc on how we see a moment. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think all of us understand that if you use alcohol in that moment, it can make you maybe more impulsive or more distressed or more disinhibited. And so trying to stay away from substances when you feel, um like you're in that moment can be really effective as well. And I think as you mentioned, you know, writing, thinking about those things that are meaningful for you and understanding that you are deserving of help and that help is out there. If we can get through these moments day by day, then there also needs to be a longer term plan. It's not fair to someone to say to someone just like get through this moment and things will be fine. It needs to be get through this moment and there is help for you and we're going to get back to the place you want to be or someplace even better.
0: I love that you mentioned that you deserve help. Uh, You know, yeah. When you're in that, in that place, you feel like you don't deserve help and uh, you go, nothing else has helped before, but but to keep trying it and keep plugging away at that, um, that, that idea also of um, you said, leave the room. I it's, it's so fascinating how much our environment can affect um, our mood and, and what we're thinking and feeling just, uh, you know when I have a sand I call it a sandstorm you know as you mentioned earlier some people say uh, sunburn um, but just going from inside to outside going for a walk or going for a drive uh, the thoughts start to shift and start to zoom out and um, you know you start to taking those panoramic views Like you know when you are visually seeing things from a distance mm-hmm. I think it uh, it mentally expands uh, our our awareness of, of our options and our resources. I, I hear you nodding in agreement.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's People deserve um, to feel safe and people deserve to be able to take the long view. People deserve to look into the horizon um, and see how things could be otherwise. And you know their job in that moment is to keep themselves safe, and then all of our jobs is to take them from that place where they're zoomed out a little bit and like filling in the color and the richness and the depth um, and reflecting the person who they are back to them. So we can say, "I'm so proud of you for keeping yourself safe in this moment." Shifting, the, shifting the, narr- the narrative a little bit, and then we'll help. We will be with you as we go the rest of the way.
0: You know, with it being you know 2020, and we. We're starting off talking about suicide notes, but with the technology, are are there text messages now? Videos or and is there a difference between somebody who leaves a written note and a text message and an email and a video? Or has that is the research not caught up to that yet?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, and I know that you know companies like you know Twitter and Facebook and Google, you know, you have to face this stuff too. You know, the way that people communicate and potentially communicate in a distressed way. Uh, one of the things that I think is interesting is I'm, in, you know, in my mid to late 30s now and I look at my daughters who are seven and two and a half and they know how to use phones like they know how to like use an iPad and and negotiate stuff in ways that maybe I didn't certainly at that age and that older folks may not. So I think that the way we communicate is always reflective of like how we normally communicate and who are what our values are, and um, and like what we feel comfortable with. So, for example, at ChemH, there's the development of a safety planning app. So rather than for some people, like a paper might be great, but for some people, like if you're on your phone and your phone is a source of like safety for you, and you're like you might communicate, you know, distressing things via text maybe more than writing. Maybe it makes sense to have the safety stuff available for you on your phone, if that makes sense. So thinking about when and if if there's you know, someone who, who might post something online or send an email or whatever, are there ways that we can kind of, kind of address that and help people keep people safe, knowing kind of where they go when they feel distressed. So I think, yeah, I think like, like pain doesn't change, um, but the way that we kind of express it or manage it changes. And it's like, we need to kind of figure out where people are coming from and, and figure out different ways where we can help prevent.
0: Um, you know, earlier when we talked about uh, lithium and the different drugs, and you're talking about the, bi- uh, the biology of depression and mental health, and then we also tapped, talked a little bit about uh, environment. What are, when we talk about mental health, what are the levels? Uh, what are the contributing factors? Biology, environment. What, what are we looking at?
1: Yeah, when I, you know, when you do training in psychiatry. um, We talk about biopsychosocial. So the biology is the things that you were kind of born with, like your family history. Um, Did someone in your family respond to a medication? Did they have depression? Did they have suicidal thinking? Um, As well as the ways that we can kind of change our biology by potentially using substances or um, putting our bodies under stress in different ways. Or and then we think about the the psychological piece, you know, do we have, how do we look at the world? Um, Do we are we black and white in our thinking when we feel depressed? Um, Do we tend to blame ourselves when things go wrong? Are we able to problem solve? And then the social piece, you know, do we have housing? Do we have people who care about us? Do we feel safe in this world and that there's a place for us in this world? I think in that social piece, I think about men and help seeking quite a bit as well. So, you know, men and middle-aged men have the highest rates of suicide of anybody in North America. And so how do we kind of help? help people like overcome those social scripts of who's allowed to seek help, who's allowed to express themselves. Um, and then the the cultural overlay as well. Um, when I ask, when I do a suicide risk assessment, I will often think about things that I can't change. So I can't change if someone has a family history of suicide or a personal history of suicidal thinking, Um, I can't change their, their gender or or their age, but these things can, I can't change whether they've had a history of trauma. I can't change these things, but I need to understand them to understand the person in context. And then I need to understand what kind of mental health symptoms they're having. You know, if this person hasn't slept in three days and they're exhausted and feeling totally overwhelmed, that's a huge deal. And so understanding kind of their, their mental health symptoms. And then I want to understand acute risk factors in terms of the social piece. So what has changed in their social life and their connectedness and their security in their relationships? Um, So I think that's a really important piece. And then finally, I look for things that I call warning signs. So for me, everybody's going to be a little bit different, but there's, there's some things that happen when people are at increased risk for suicide on the order of like minutes to hours to days. So if people are more agitated, they're talking more about suicide, they're maybe using a lot more substances that they normally wouldn't be, um, that they have insomnia and they feel like there's like they kind of can't get out of their body. Maybe they have panic or they feel restless. Um, these, these are things that I really, uh, or they're engaging in more self-harm behavior. These are things that I kind of think about the bucket of warning signs. And that means that we need to intervene you know, quickly um, to help support the person.
0: Uh, When you talked about black and white thinking, what does that look like for people who who may not be able to recognize that they have black and white thinking?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. It can look different for different people. And I think the other word you you hear it is like cognitive rigidity. Um, I think about it as, you know, how if something happens, then a bunch of other things that can happen. So, you know, if I uh, call in sick or if I show up late for work, then people might be annoyed with me. I might get fired. Um, People might say, oh, you know, the the commuter train wasn't working today, no big deal. Um, People might ask me if everything is okay. People might say, like, not even notice. So when I say if, there's many thens. But if you're in a really black and white place, the if and the then become really tightly linked and tough to kind of decouple. So, you know, if. I get into a fight with my boyfriend or girlfriend, then he or she will definitely break up with me. There's no way around it. If I lose my job, then my children can't go to university. There's no way around it. And it's kind of, it reminds me of what you said about time distortion. It's almost like you get so zoomed into that moment. You can only see that potential con- like consequence without seeing kind of the longer view. So if you find yourself in a position where when you say if there's only one then, it can be a sign that, things are getting pretty black and white and that you might need to kind of talk to someone or get some support.
0: I appreciate you sharing that. And also, you know, when you mentioned uh, a feeling of safety for, uh, you know, middle-aged white men, um, you know, have the highest uh, rates right now. And, you know, when we look at the blue zones, the areas where people are living to a hundred and really thriving, one of the things they mentioned was not only the nutrition and their lifestyle, but a feeling of safety and, and safety and trust in the in the government uh, around them uh, and, and and in their neighbors, and so th- that to me speaks to I guess in some ways that can link back into the the suicide rates that they're reporting in African American males, or you know I'm from Chicago and and they're mm-hmm. talking about a spike um, in Chicago, so I I would imagine that that feeling of uh, of not feeling safe uh, from your neighbors from the government, et cetera, et cetera, uh, can uh, contribute to that.
1: And I think safety is such an important word and we can think of safety as like physical safety, but we can also think of it as like emotional and psychological safety. Um, do I feel safe saying a thing that I believe? Do I feel safe that bad things aren't going to happen to me? Do I feel safe that I can share you know, my sad feelings with someone and they won't ridicule or make fun of me? Um, do I feel safe going to the doctor to know that they can help me and that there is hope. And so I think kind of building connectedness um, in, like, within ourselves and between ourselves um, and psychological safety um, across cultures can be so important.
0: I, I'm glad you brought that up. The idea of, do I feel safe enough to share that I'm hurt or sad? I uh, Two things. One, I just had a friend who, you know, she was quote unquote ghosted by a guy she was seeing, you know, meaning like mm-hmm. he just stopped calling and he was like I just don't feel connected and then you know she pressed on as to what that really felt what that really meant and once they had a conversation it was like a two-hour conversation uh, by the end of it he was like oh you know what I feel really connected to you and really what was happening is he was afraid if he shared all of himself with her that <laughs> she would leave and 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 so that creates a a, a lack of trust and a feeling of uh, he didn't feel emotionally safe enough to share with her. But then in that two hour conversation when he did, he was like, oh, yeah, it was definitely going another date. And <laughs> um, it ties into a movie uh, her with Joaquin Phoenix, where um, him and his wife got a divorce and they and someone asked him, why are they getting a divorce? And a part of his answer was he hid parts of himself from her. Mm. Um, he, you know, he didn't feel safe enough to share. So I appreciate you bringing that up because it it, it, it uh, triggered those two uh, instances.
1: And I think that is so so such kind of such lovely comments about the power of connection and feeling seen and feeling heard. And you know. As we circle back to the the suicide notes, it's so heartbreaking that people are talking about their feelings in this moment where there's no opportunity for connection. And I think that's what's so devastating about suicide is that as a function of feeling lonely and burdensome and in pain and isolated, we're robbing ourselves of the opportunity to feel safe and connected. Um, And so the idea of like, how do we find these moments of meaning with each other, connect. Um, they create a culture where we give help and get help, where we ask how we're each other are doing. I think I'm sure you guys have talked about this on the podcast before, but, you know, asking someone in a supportive way about suicidal thinking doesn't put the idea into their head. It can make it, it can make them know that, Hey, this is something that we talk about. And this is a safe, a safe thing that we can talk about. And I care about you and I love you. And I remember, um, when there's an organization in, uh, in Ontario in Canada called jack.org, um, and the founder is called Eric Windler and he and his wife lost their son to suicide uh, when he was a university student. And one of the things that Eric said that really stuck with me is that we need to be having these conversations earlier um, with our children when they're young and with each other. So, you know, when we have the conversations of, you know, hey, if you ever have thoughts like these, if you ever feel down or depressed, I'm always here for you. I know things are going super well right now, but, you know, I've had these thoughts before and I know they can come kind of all of a sudden, please let me know if anything changes and I'm always here for you. And if we can have these conversations during the good times, then when things are hard, we know that we, we've built that safety and we've built that understanding um, that we can talk about it.
0: Thank you so much. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you feel like it's important for the listeners to know? Is there anything about the CAMH uh, program or the Not uh, Suicide, Not Today program that that the listeners need to be aware of?
1: Uh, oh, thank you so much for asking. So it's the, the Not Suicide, Not Today program um, it has been in the works for about a year. And the team in charge of it has interviewed people like me who are researchers, but also people more more importantly, um, and family members who have had lived experience with suicidality. And it's um, such an honor to be part of a campaign like this that is saying, you know, we're going to take suicide out of the darkness. We are going to talk to and for and with people who have experienced suicide, experienced suicide lost, have survived and recovered from suicidal behavior, we're going to change the way we talk about this so that everyone out there knows that there is help and they do matter and they are deserving of care. Um, so we are really, really excited about this. And um, I think it can help change lives and it can help um, change the way we talk about um, suicide and mental health.
0: Where can people find you
1: where can people find me? So I think uh, camh.ca is a great, great, great resource. And it has all of the information on, on our campaign. Um, and I am just one small piece of the CAMH wheel. And I'm always available if, if someone has a thought via via email um, to connect.
0: Thank you. And then last question I us this of all my guests. Because always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of ending their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them?
1: I think what I would say is that you matter um, and that people love you. And even if you can't see it in this moment, you are worth too much um, to end your life out of pain and that you are deserving of a life full of meaning and that there are so many people cheering for you. And if you can make it through this day, then the people around you who love you can help take over and get you through the next day and the next day until um, the future feels much brighter.
0: Javeri, thank you so much. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help, for you calling the 1-800-SUICIDE or 1-800-273-TALK. There are also international phone numbers linked in the show notes. If you're in Canada or India or uh, Asia, wherever you are, there is re- there are resources available for you. You can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Javeria.
1: Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure.